You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. She does not know what is happening outside right this minute as the small brigade of vehicles, the armored vans, the black sedans with government plates, appear at the end of her block with their headlights off. She lives in a wooded neighborhood, each house set back on a half-acre lot. There are no street lights, no sidewalk. The vehicles purr to a stop. Their doors swing open but do not close. Any noise that might bring Claire to the window, the stomp of boots along the asphalt, the clatter of assault rifles and ammunition clips, is muffled by the steady snowfall, a white shroud thrown over the night. She does not know about the tall man, in the black suit and black necktie, his skull as hairless as a stone who stands next to his black Lincoln town car. She does not know that he has his hands tucked into his pockets or that the snow is melting against his scalp and dripping down his face, or that he is smiling slightly. She does not know that her father and mother are sitting at the kitchen table drinking their way through a bottle of Merlot, not holding but squeezing each other's hands in reassurance as they watch CNN, the coverage of what the president called a coordinated terror attack directed at the heart of America. So she does not know that. When the front door kicks open, splintering along its hinges, her father is holding the remote in his hand, a long black remote that could be mistaken for a weapon. She does not know that he stands up so suddenly his chair tips over and clatters to the floor that he screams no and holds out his hand, the hand gripping the remote, and points it at the men as they come rushing through the entryway, the dark rectangle of night, with snow fluttering around them like damp shredded paper. She only knows when she hears the crash, the screams, the rattle of gunfire that she must run. Benjamin Percy is the author of The Wilding and two short story collections, Refresh, Refresh, and The Language of Elk. His new novel is Red Moon. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin. Thanks so much for having me on. This is an incredible piece of fiction in a variety of manners. It's a great piece of world building in the way of great science fiction. It's an incredible use of allegory. It's a ripping yarn. It's a political novel, more political than any novel I've read this year and I'm likely to read. Uh, And I'd like you to talk about where you started with this. What was the core idea that drove you to begin writing this novel? When I sat down a few years back and, and conceived of Red Moon, I was thinking about some of my favorite fantasy stories and some of the most resonant fantasy stories. So if you look to Frankenstein, you'll see the way that the creature embodies cultural unease. The creature uh, 
sort of captures all the anxiety swirling around the Industrial Revolution and the fear of man playing God and the fear of science and technology. And, and I was interested in doing that. I was interested in taking a knife to the nerve of the moment. So if you look at Frankenstein or if you look at some other example like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and how that narrative hangs on uh, McCarthyism and the Red Scare. So fast forward to today. What do we fear right now? We fear infection first. And if you look at the countertops or the entryways of any business in America, you'll find Purell oozing from it as an embodiment of this, or just the way that our headlines are dominated by West Nile or by swine flu or bird flu every time there's an outbreak. So there's, there's infection, but then I wanted to braid that together with our fear of terrorism. And if you look at what's happened in recent weeks, we have been so unfortunately reminded of that with the Boston Marathon bombing. Stephen King says that terror is the most powerful of all emotions. We want to believe that love is, but terror is the red right hand of love, and, and we can be paralyzed by the millions. We can be gripped by the millions by terror. And so infection, terror, merging the two together into this, which is, I guess you could say, a post-9-11 reinvention of the werewolf myth. It strikes me as you are talking that our understanding of terror makes it very much like a cultural infection, like there's uh, the terrorists themselves are analogous to germs within the human continuum and ready to do damage in much the same way that disease does. So that parallel carries out even in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could say that there's the, you know, there's this infection within all of us, and then there's this larger infection within the country. So it works on both those levels at once. When you um, were starting to write this, talk about creating the the world that this unfolds in because it's not exactly alternate history, although there's an alternate history behind it. It's an alternate present, and it has a very, I think, uh, rigorous and well-thought-out science fiction backbone to carry it through and make it seem believable. I, I read an article recently, I think it was in The Guardian, about how the supernatural has given way to science fiction. And I, I guess this novel might be might be evidence of that in the way that I, I did not want to conceive of these werewolves or lichens as like as I call them as full moon howlers, but instead a believable horror. And so one thing has been changed about our world, and that is that the infected live among us. And I have this this disease, this animal-born pathogen leaping out of the wolf population in prehistoric times, mutating in its human host. And when you fast forward to today, roughly 5% of the population is infected. The story takes place now, but I had to do a lot of reverse engineering. I had to think about uh, origin stories and how throughout history uh, this one thing would have shifted so many others. So... The Crusades, World War II, Westward Expansionism, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, and then 
in the present day, how has this affected the post 9-11 climate? So it's a world building opportunity. Uh, and, and in that way, I, I came to create a, an other, like a, a representation of the other that's, that, that merged together any group that has been marginalized throughout history. One thing that uh, we see at the very beginning, the inception, the earliest image, is a cave painting. And I'm wondering, was that cave painting real? Because it seemed like that was one thing that you really could have pulled out of reality. <laughs> uh, well, uh, one of the reasons I, I, I made that nod to the cave painting is that I had an, an early career in archaeology. That's, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to be Indiana Jones, and, and I even had a a fedora and a bullwhip and and as a you know as a kid I would crack uh, stones off the top of fence posts with my with my bullwhip and I had the leather satchel that I would keep bones in and and maps in and I actually went out and and went did several digs uh, and and one summer my my job was to seek out different rock art sites throughout Eastern Oregon and to, to map them and GPS them in. So I was, you know, marching up and down all these different canyons and through forests. And, and it was sort of like a, a Jeremiah Johnson experience in that I slept under the stars and didn't shave or really bathe except in rivers uh, for, for over a month. And, and during this time, I, I was put, putting butcher paper to, to, to stone walls and, and scratching out the petroglyphs and, and mapping out pictographs. And, and anyways, it was, it was kind of an, a nod to that to that moment in my life. it's It sounds like fun, and that's one of the things I think that is preeminent in this book in a, just a variety of fashions. This book is a blast to read, and the reading experience is very complicated. And I'd like you to talk about, having conceived this world, did you write down the background for it first and like set yourself up with a Bible and a history and then begin to execute the fiction, or did you just start with the characters? Well, I typically begin thinking about a novel about a year in advance of writing it. So what I do is I rip off of my kids, Melissa and Doug Ardiesel, a 10-foot scroll of paper, and I hang it on my office wall. And I might have, you know, five of these hanging there at once uh, with different projects in mind. And so I, I start by sketching out a character. And, and by sketching, I mean I'm, I'm actually cartooning them sometimes. And then I'm supplying kind of a Wikipedia entry about their history and their desires. And then once I figure out that, I start to conceive of obstacles that might stand in the way of those desires. And these obstacles become plot points. So I begin mapping out all of this stuff. And, and it, you know, it's impossible to keep especially a book of this size in, in my head all at once. So I needed that blueprint and and over the top of it, one of the things I would do too was create sort of like a cardiogram or seismograph or what I called a suspensometer uh, to figure out like the spikes and the valleys to figure out like when the action was coming to a head and when there was a moment of repose where the characters might uh, consider their circumstances and to have sort of like a, an emotionally resonant moment. And I was, I was thinking about almost like sheet music, you know, that larger orchestration of, of suspense. And all of this is done in pencil, of course, because so many things change. But, but yeah, first I had that, that world-building notion about 
infection, terrorism, the post-9-11 were reinvention of the werewolf myth, and then the characters, and then from there, figuring out how these characters were going to swirl together and, and, and get into trouble. I, I really love the characters, and the first character we meet is, is Patrick Gamble, and this gets to, I think, one of the central notions of this book is what it means to be a hero. And what I like about your novel is that it makes very clear the point that every villain considers himself a hero from their own perspective, and except for Patrick, who has a little bit of a problem with his heroism. Yeah, well, I'm, I have many different characters in this book, and they are the infected and the uninfected. They are men and women. They are young and old. They come from all different geographic and cultural backgrounds. And what I want to do is supply these myriad perspectives on a very complicated issue. And in the case of Patrick, he has been labeled a hero, uh, which he finds and and sort of unfortunate. Uh, he doesn't like the attention. He doesn't feel it's deserving because of the circumstances as he survives this terrorist attack for no good reason except that he is hidden beneath a body. Uh, and he becomes a sort of reluctant, conservative poster boy as a result of this. And every reporter wants to speak with him and everyone in the town wants to sort of sidle up to him. Uh, but he's torn up inside. Uh, not only because of the incident, but because he feels he feels he feels drawn in several different directions politically. He doesn't know where he stands on the issue of of the lichens, and in part that's because his father is off to war, and in part that's because he finds out without supplying any spoilers a certain secret about his about his past. One of the things I think that makes this book so thoroughly enjoyable is the way you use analogy um, in this book. And it's so intensely filled with this that as we read it, we're constantly, on one hand, we're immersed in the plot. And on the other hand, we're thinking, oh, this is kind of like this in our world. And this is kind of like that in our world. I'm wondering if you had an analogy o meter <laughs> to, to complement your suspense o meter. <laughs> well, I was... You know, I hope that when somebody's reading this book, they can see parallels to our own world. But I, I wanted that mirror, that mirror that I'm holding up with a crack running through it, to to make the reflection blurred enough and warped enough that it is and is not that political figure or this international battle or this cultural conflict or even this disease. And, and the danger is if you're being too close to the bone uh, that you'll come across as editorial, uh, that you'll come across as partisan. And I was hoping to be political, like this is, this is a political book, this is an allegorical book, there's a lot of analogies, but it is, I hope, all-encompassing enough and blurred enough that we're looking at it from every conceivable angle, these issues from every conceivable angle. Uh Mission accomplished. One of the things I really loved about this book was the way you could make the characters cut both ways and the analogies cut both ways simultaneously. So we'll see that this has a reference to this side of the debate and that side of the debate, and both sides are embodied in one character who refers to maybe this kind of 
embodies this kind of conservative notion, but also embodies this kind of liberal notion at the same time. And I love that sense of gray. It, this book, I think, has a lot of roots in Animal Farm. <laughs> That's what I'm reminding yeah, me of. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was very happy to have that that blurb from John Irving in which he refers to it as Orwellian. I was, I was definitely thinking about about that about Animal Farm when when I wrote it. Um, and you know, it's it. It's again. It's a. It's a difficult thing to do. And and when I set off in 2004 to write a short story about the war in Iraq, uh, called "Refresh, Refresh," I, I I was thinking about the same thing. I'd read all these news reports about the war, but I had I had seen no fiction. There's been plenty of fiction in the meantime, but at that time I hadn't seen any fiction about the war in Iraq. And and you know, I, I wanted to not say this, that war is good or war is bad, but instead this is war. And it's a very naughty, tangled up subject. So, you know, how art, I guess, is, is, is supposed to, to raise questions instead of answer them. Again, mission accomplished. As I read this book, I thought it was so much fun to see the characters, as I say, on both sides of the debate. And one of the things that drives this novel is, of course, we have at its core three really strong characters. Uh, we talked a little bit about Patrick. Let's talk about Claire, who's on uh, somewhat on the other side of the equation. Yeah, Claire is among the infected, and she and Patrick's story will become entwined as the novel progresses, and they are the star-crossed lovers of Red Moon. Uh, she only wants to be normal. She wants to reject her past, but she is forced to reconcile with it when, after the opening terrorist attack, some government agents show up on her doorstep. That's the section I read from. And she is, you know, she, she discovers the secret history that her parents were caught up in a kind of weather underground movement long ago. Um, and, and again, I don't want to get too much into the plot spoilers or anything like that, but she's going to have to embrace essentially the wolf inside her. But when I was, when I was thinking about Claire, um, something notable to consider is that, well, this book has a lot more in common with X-Men, I would say, than Twilight. Um, but I did have Bella in mind when I was writing this, in part because I was so bothered by the fact that in Twilight you have this character who is emotionally and physically abused within a relationship, and yet she is in love and sacrifices herself to this male character. And if I think about when I think about the women in my own life, I mean, my mother is a warrior. My wife is a force of nature, and our daughter seems to be following in her footsteps. And all of my bosses are 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 women, uh, you know, smart, tough women. My my department chair, where I teach, my my agent, my editor, and and I, I was thinking more about them when conceiving of some of these characters like Claire, and wanting to make them uh, women warriors. And so even though the world is, is you know, f fighting back against Claire Tooth and Claw, she never compromises herself. She's always 
uh, you know, narrowing her eyes and jutting her chin against any sort of conflict she approaches. This brings to mind. I, I love the uh, your the way you've translated uh, uh, the history of the '60s into this lichen uh, version. And there's a great image that you draw up of uh, of a lichen standing on the hood of a car with a burning American flag. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the really fun parts of this book. Could you talk about recreating the '60s with through this kind of a funhouse mirror? And, because I think you do a fabulous job. Well, I just, uh, I didn't want to eliminate the history that already exists. I wanted instead to thread the lichen resistance into that already and to create uh, a, a, an extremist faction that was that was caught up in, in, those, in those crazy times. So yeah, that image of what turns out to be Claire's father on top of you know, uh, holding holding this burning flag upright and transforming with all of these people uh, surrounding him, cheering him on. Yeah, that was that's one of those. Uh, what I was trying to create was kind of like an iconic image, uh, a, a Life magazine photo for 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 the lichens. Now, one of the uh, parts of the background of the book is that there is a lichen homeland, and this takes us to a completely different set of analogies, parallels, and problems. And I love this idea of the lichen homeland. You have so much fun with it. And again, you you put us on one side, and then you just lop us over onto the other. I think that's really a lot of fun. So tell us about creating the lichen homeland. Well, it was created at the same time as Israel, 19, 1948, and it is located uh, in the, this, this icy mantle of the world between Finland and Russia, uh, and it is U.S. occupied. Uh, so you see the parallels there, because of its, it because it is uranium rich, and because the U.S. in in the way that I've written the story is is becoming more and more reliant on on nuclear energy. Uh, so uh, we 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 follow some of the characters over there and this is in part two of the novel and what I was trying to do really was create like an you know for for part two uh, a kind of empire strikes back sort of situation you know part two is when is the is the darkest section of the novel and it's when almost all the hope is lost and so you have some of the characters overseas in this in this uh sort of morally hazy territory and they're 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 fighting for for causes that that cause con that, that that creates conflict within them and and uh, and anyways I had I had a blast not not only researching that part of the world and trying to create this believable setting but also researching uh, uranium mining I mean every every book for me is a research project and there were so many things in Redmond that I that I did not know among them among them the complexities of uranium enrichment. One of the things I really liked about the book is its kind of global nature and the way you take us to all these different places. Um, I, I'm thinking of the uh, Bloodbath Springs. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I, you create these places economically, realistically. And I'd like you to talk about how uh, you research those places and create them uh, in this 21st century uh, writing landscape. Well, I think I might be more attuned to landscape than most because of the way I grew up. I grew up on 27 acres of land in Oregon, and at dawn, I would 
take off, and by dinner I could return in sort of a huck finish sort of way with not much in the way of supervision. Uh, and my parents were back to the landers for a while, so uh, we had a huge vegetable garden, we had a hen house, we had fruit trees, my father hunted all of our meat, uh, so we ate venison, elk, and bear. I grew up eating bear, that's why I sound like this. And 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 every every vacation, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, Every single vacation we took was hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, or rock hounding. My father's an obsessive rock hound. So I never went to Disneyland. I never went to Bermuda. I never went to Europe or anything like that. I instead was, you know, it, walking some trail in the woods or, or rafting some river. And so, I, you know, I, I feel, I think I'm, I'm very connected and aware of place. And I'm always trying to conceive of it as kind of like a character in any given moment. If you look at any of the scenes, you'll see that I'm not just talking about the space that the characters inhabit. And that could be bloodbath springs, uh, that, that moment in the story. Or it could be, you know, a, 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 a corral on a ranch. Uh, it, you know, I'm not just thinking about the space, like the immediate stage. I'm thinking about the place as well. I'm thinking about Oregon or I'm thinking about, uh, San Francisco or I'm thinking, which, you know, there's, a, there's a scene that takes place there, scene, scenes that takes place there. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the loop and Republic. I'm thinking about Minnesota or, or whatever. And, and, you know, I, I'm trying to draw upon the geography of that place. Yes. But also the, the culture and the history and the myths of that place. Sometimes I'm inventing these, but, but I, you know, I, I want, I want the, the place to be more than just a, a backdrop, but instead uh, a participant in the narrative. You know, at the beginning of this interview, you mentioned uh, fantasy novels, and it just strikes me that what you've written is, is very much a fantasy novel in which instead of creating Middle Earth, you've recreated 21st century Earth with this, through this funhouse mirror. But it has, the way you describe the the places strikes me uh, very much of your approach is similar to the way uh, fantasy writers take when they're doing world building and creating their own landscapes. And I, and I have a, you know, a strong background with fantasy in that I, I grew up obsessed with genre and uh, it, it, I was obsessed with westerns. I was obsessed with mysteries. Obsessed with spy thrillers. Obsessed with horror, of course, and 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 fantasy novels. Uh, you know, if it had a dragon on the cover, I would get really excited. And uh, I read my way through all of those dragon lance books, all those forgotten realms books. Uh, you know, I I, I read uh, all the Conan novels and, and, and so on. And when you're looking at these books, what you see is that they, they have, they're typically quite long, like especially, uh, George R. R. Martin's Song of Fire and Ice series. Like these books are big, big books. And in part that's because of the world building that occurs. You know, you, you have to pause and explain dragon mating ceremonies, or you have to pause and explain, you know, the politics of the realm. And and the trick is, like, how do you do that without slowing down the narrative? Uh, a lot of fantasy novels don't seem to worry about that. I mean, if you look at Tolkien, that the Lord of the Rings trilogy especially is, is very encyclopedic. 
in the way that it's written. There's a lot of very I love I love them those books, but they they're not fast moving in the way that The Hobbit is, which is you know a, a much swifter quest. Uh, so what I was trying to do is when I was writing Red Moon was figure out like how do you do that, but still have the chapters rattle off like a howitzer. You know how do you how do you have all this exposition, all this world building exposition, but still make it a, a propulsive reading experience. Uh, I, you absolutely managed it. It's very much uh, a thriller. And in that regard, I'd like you to talk about plotting uh, the at things that are taken directly from our world and rewriting them into your world and coming up with a, essentially a thriller plot that can kind of fit into our world but doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're... If you're if you're creating these new rules, uh, if you're if you're creating an alternate history, if you if you have to explain how uh, this animal-born pathogen has not only affected people physiologically and, and psychologically, but affected the world historically and, and economically and politically, then you know you, you have to have these breaks from from the narrative. But what I tried to do was uh, sort of cheat, like find ways to smash that stuff into the story and still make it a thriller. So one trick is put a rookie in into your into your story. Uh, if you put a rookie into your story and pair them with an expert, then you have a good reason for the audience to learn about something because you're learning about it alongside the rookie. So you see this in cop movies all the time. Like you want to know about the mean streets of New York and, and corruption within an apartment, you put the rookie cop with the elder cop. Or look at Harry Potter. Harry Potter doesn't know anything about magic. He shows up at Hogwarts, and he learns about this world of muggles, the world of magicians. And, and it works, us being fed this information, because Harry Potter is as curious as we are. So, to give you an example of that, in Red Moon, in the second part, I have one of my characters, Claire, who is essentially a rookie character in that she has, de- she has tried to deny her past and she finds herself at this Lycan University, William Archer University, which is located in Montana, and she is taking these classes. And, you know, I'm not just putting her in these classes to learn. There's other stuff going on, but I'm able to sneak in the Wikipedia stuff along the way through, through the moments like that or through news, newspaper reports. Or, or television reports, another part of the novel. Like whenever I can just sprinkle this this uh, trail of crumbs throughout, I, I will. One of the characters I, we really like a lot is Chase Williams, <laughs> and what I like about him and I and his uh, his uh, sidekick uh, Augustus is these are people who are very morally gray. And Chase starts out on one side of the equation, yet like most of our crusading politicians, turns out that maybe that uh, he picked the wrong side. Sure. Well, you can always. I mean, we we see this in the news all the time. You have some outspoken politician and it turns out that they have a few skeletons in their closet after all this time. So I wanted to play off of that, you know, this this character who is violently opposed to uh Lycan rights, who has fought against them, uh quite literally, and that he's gone overseas as as a soldier. Uh and then 
something happens to him that might change his compass. And speaking of overseas, what I really liked, too, was that you have this kind of Israeli situation with the Lycan homeland, but you turn it into an Iraq situation at the same time. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, this is so much fun to have those two things smashed together. So talk about the fighting the war. Well, uh, I have... You know, I have I have the Chase Williams character who who goes overseas to fight when he's younger, and then has to return there later as a as a figurehead politician, and and uses the the Lupine Republic as as part of his platform, uh, as he as he runs for president. And then you have the the Patrick Gamble character who is fathering uh, who is following his father, uh, who is who has vanished overseas when when part of a, a National Guard unit battling over there. Uh, and so he joins up in an effort to, uh, you know, to, to find his father and, and gets into sort of, gets into all sorts of trouble from there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to, if, if you're thinking about, a, you know, a longer narrative like this, uh, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out ways to rev the engine uh, and and one way is to, you know, switch around the point of view. Like I I I might build uh, a character's story towards some moment of heightened action, and then cut away and not come back to them for twenty pages, so that you're held in suspense all this time, wondering what happened to that guy. Um, and another way is, you know, you have uh, big setting shifts, and that keeps things fresh, so that we feel. Uh, disoriented and and just when we might feel comfortable with the Oregon setting uh, where the where the story begins this western sto- setting where the story begins we find ourselves launched overseas and and seeing the issues that we might thought we had begun to understand from a completely different vantage point you mentioned westerns and I come to think of it in retrospect this really does have the feel of a western in its kind of open spaces. There's a lot of big open spaces, and there are a lot of characters who are on personal, if not necessarily uh, practical frontiers. So I'd like you to talk about turning this novel, the Western influence on this novel. Sure. Well, if you look at Patrick Gamble especially, uh, and he in the, in the part three of the book, what I was trying to do is figure out a way to create a new Wild West. Uh, and and the answer turned out to be, you know, <laughs> create a a nuclear wasteland, and and that allows my character Patrick Gamble, as he negotiates the Pacific Northwest, uh, on a on a Harley, instead of on a horse, it allows him to become that cowboy character, someone who is uh, trying to bring justice to the frontier. Uh, and, and then you have, you know, bands of outlaws on the loose and, and, uh, sort of a, a white hat coming up against a black hat in that way. I also really like what you did with drugs and disease and, and particularly the way you talk about drugs in this novel. It's again, it's a lot of fun and it struck me, uh, that the way you use drugs is similar to the way I think that's to a certain extent, the way Philip K. Dick had sometimes used them in his books. And that's this bear, book bears a lot of resemblance to Philip K. Dick in many ways. Well, I'm, I'm definitely following his tracks in the mud. And I'm, 
you know, I, I wanted too to to pay attention to this trend and that forty percent of Americans are are medicated, and and there's that interesting question about whether uh, taking certain medications is is you know, is this dulling or sharpening your your senses? Is it is it creating a new identity? Is it muffling who you really are? And since this book is all about self and divisions within self, I thought that that was particularly appropriate. When we, uh, one of the characters we meet is uh, Miriam, and uh, she's a, a wonderful warrior woman, and I'd like you to talk about uh, creating this character. I really liked reading about her. Yeah, she she's probably the character who's, who's my favorite in the, in the novel, and, and she surprised me the most, too. Uh, I originally conceived of her as a more marginal character, and then she came alive and surprised me, and I'm, I'm really excited... Uh, to potentially write the sequel, uh, if the infection spreads, if if enough readers are interested in continuing this narrative, because I I see her as becoming the central character in in the next uh, in the next stage of this saga, and she's you know she's the woman warrior as as you mentioned she's you know she's been part of the resistance for so long, and her husband is a charismatic leader within it. But then, as a result of a tragedy, she breaks away from him, breaks away from the resistance, and wants to just live independently and and to, to sort of uh, try to to suffocate her demons. And but the resistance won't let her. The resistance is chasing her down, and and so she has to battle back against them and become predator instead of prey. I love the sense of character dynamics, the way you create uh, situations in this book where people are forced to make choices by virtue of their circumstances, and, and I'm thinking of Claire's parents versus Miriam, and that's a really great uh dichotomy that you set up there. So I'd like you to talk about playing the dynamics out again against the grand scale of this novel, the sweep of this novel. Well, you always have to have obstacles in the way of desire. And so if you think about what Claire's parents want, they want for their daughter to own her identity. They want her to be proud of her like and heritage. Uh, they are out of the picture as a result of that swift government crackdown that follows the initial terror attacks. And so Claire finds herself abandoned in exile and struggling to know where to, to you know, where her future lies and, and struggling to figure out who she is. And she falls, uh, she falls into the care of Miriam who is on the other end of the spectrum. She's somebody who has been caught up in the, in the resistance movement. She's somebody who the, her parents had, had, have hidden from her. And so now you have, you have Miriam, who the last thing she wants is anybody in her life, but she has this, this orphaned kid now in her responsibility. And Claire just wants to get home to her family, but that's not a possibility. And what I'm saying is that everybody has these competing desires that creates this really messed up situation. You never can give your characters what they want. 
these characters are, I think, extremely gray. We, they kind of fall on both sides of the equation. At one point, uh, I think it's uh, Patrick asks Miriam, are, are you bad? <laughs> and, and then at another point, somebody points at somebody and says, those are the bad guys, <laughs> even though they've just presented themselves as the good guys. Right, right. And the idea is, you know, that everything's colored in shades of gray, that there is no black and white. That that everybody is is again when it comes to divisions, everybody's a, a villain and a hero at once. Uh, one person's passionate convictions, uh, you know, they think that they're in the right, they think that they're in the no, turns out to be the opposite of what somebody on the other side believes, and and yeah, I you know I just like that. I like to make things as complicated as possible for my, for my characters because only trouble is interesting in literature. And you mentioned quite a bit of literature in the book. So uh, we get, of course, a, a reference to Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'd like you to talk about the, the literary backdrop for this book. Sure. Well, one thing I was considering is, is how there's no definitive werewolf novel, really. If you think about Dracula, that's, that's the definitive vampire novel. Or if you think about Turn of the Screw, that's sort of the foundational Ghost Story or The Haunting of Hill House by, by Shirley Jackson. Uh, if you think about the creature story, that's, that's Frankenstein. Uh, but for werewolves, I think most people think of werewolf mythology in terms of Fillmore. And so I like the idea of, a, of approaching a subject where I could, I was, I was f- more free to, to mess around with mythology. Uh, and Jekyll and Hyde really seems to be the werewolf novel. There's no werewolf within it, but it embodies what we love about the werewolf myth in that you have a wildness within you. We all have a wildness within us and due to rage or exhaustion or drinks, too much to drink or drugs, we, we have come to regret our behavior the next morning. And so this, this battle between ego and id, you see that in Jekyll and Hyde, you see that in the Incredible Hulk, you see that in the werewolf. And, and so I was, I, was, I was thinking about that, but I was thinking too, like just on a larger scale, about, about the books that I'm drawn most to. And, you know, everybody's always trying to say, oh, this is literary, or this is genre, or this is literary horror, and, and, and I don't know. Everybody loves to, to label things. It makes them comfortable to, to put a tag on something. But I don't know. I feel like these are more phantom barricades than anything. I feel like genre is sort of irrelevant at the, at this point. The genre doesn't exist. That that uh, you know, if you look at Margaret Atwood as an example, where does she belong in a bookstore? Look at Cormac McCarthy. What part of the bookstore does Cormac McCarthy belong in? Could he he could be in literature. He could be in sci-fi. He could be in crime. Uh, look at uh, Dan Simmons or Peter Straub. Look at Kate Atkinson. And, and I think maybe the better division is, the better way to think about it is uh, you have some people who are storytellers first. And Dean Koontz might be a good example of this. You know, his prose is pretty much translucent. Uh, it's all about the story. It's all about turning, or Dan Brown, it's all about turning the pages as swiftly as you can, figuring out what happens next. And then you have people who are more writers, 
you know, and, and that's what people mean by literary. And those people are really interested in pretty sentences and uh, glowing metaphors and subterranean themes and, and all of that. And, and sometimes you go too far in either direction, like the pretty sentences are, are, are quite exquisite, but, you know, it's nice when something happens besides just somebody looking out a window at a roiling bank of clouds and having an epiphany. Uh, and sometimes the storytellers, you know, like they've got a ripping yarn, but there's not much in the way of artful, artful technique. So like my favorite writers, are the ones who are thinking about both those things, who are both writers and storytellers. And, and so that's what I was trying, trying to do with, with Red Moon is that to have that careful carpentry, but to also like create a really propulsive reading experience. I would say, again, uh, that you've really managed that with this book. One of the things, too, that you managed with this book is I love the sense of normalcy redefined. Uh, at one point, uh, we have a, a character who's uh, thinking about his mother. Uh, her infection became more divisive to their marriage than politics or religion. And so that's kind of our are normalcy redefined. There's another point where we kind of get the feeling that how turning uh, the lichen transformation has a lot of analogous to sex. And so I love these kind of uh, redefinitions of normalcy in your book. Well, I'm trying to make the surreal real. I'm trying to make the extraordinary ordinary. Uh, if you look at George Saunders, he has this fantastic story called Sea Oak. And in it, Aunt Bernie dies and then comes back. It's a zombie story. But the thing that distinguishes it is that Aunt Bernie comes back because she never lived. So she comes back and she says, okay, here's the plan. I'm going to get me so many lovers because she died a virgin. She says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to travel because she never even got on a plane in her life. And she says, I'm going to, you know, we're going to eat well because they ate as a family, mostly TV dinners. And, and so the zombie story becomes quite acceptable, digestible because of that, that just innate human desire that accompanies it. And, and I'm, I'm trying to always do that, like find a way to, to create normalcy within these extraordinary circumstances. Uh, I can think of another example of this. This, uh, this, this story by Nick Hornby called Otherwise Pandemonium. And in it, this kid discovers a, a VCR that if he fast forward, like if he records something and then he fast forwards, it will look into the future. And so what he, what he discovers is that the apocalypse is coming. So he only has a month before like the world falls apart. Uh, and, and, and what does he do with this information? He decides to use it to get a girl he has a crush on to sleep with him so that they don't, don't die virgins, right? So it's just, it, it creates this incredible circumstance and then grounds it in human truth. And as a result, we totally buy into the fact that he's got this magic VCR. So how do you make people believe in werewolves by doing stuff like this? I really liked the the reading experience of this book. And I, I think that was the the... It was so interesting to find myself completely entranced by this page-turning plot. And one of the things I think that you do with your plotting that's very interesting is that 
you'll create these propulsive thriller moments, and then we cut away and you'll leap ahead and it's four months ahead or something. And I think that that's a interesting and somewhat risky uh, gamble on your part. When you did this, did you have the the movements planned, as it were? Well, I actually originally conceived of this book as a, as a trilogy. And so it was going to be book one, book two, book three. Uh, my editor thought, and I'm really glad she did this, that she advised this, she thought it would be more interesting to have a, an epic sweeping story. And so if you look at part one and part two and part three, there are big leaps in time that you just referenced. Uh, and that's when I'm sort of resetting everything. That th- those sections would have been the pause between one book and the next. But now you have, you know, this brief beat of white space and then... We're six months into the future, and we're in a new place, and a lot of stuff has happened. And, you know, think of it as the, the, the movement between uh, seasons of a t- television series. Think of it as the movement between uh, books and a trilogy. Uh, think of it, too, as just, as I was saying before, another way to create a, a story that is, that is uh, you know, that is that is fast moving um, in that I eliminate all the transitions, you know, and that's, that's just advice, I guess, for, for the writing life and that you always want to cut things down as, as pare them down as much as you can. And, and so by having these sort of vacations, these white space vacations and, and then moving forward at first, you might feel a little bewildered and, and you're playing catch up, but I've, I've, I've been able to, you know, cut away the joints of the narrative and just create a, a faster moving machine. I really did like the the sweep, the, you know, the epic feel of this novel. That's one of the real appeals of these kind of novels. And it strikes me, too, that these kind of novels are coming back. I, there was a period during the 80s, the heyday of the 80s horror novel when you had Stephen King and... Uh, Peter Straub and Dean Koontz writing some big, fat novels, and Robert R. McCammon mm-hmm. comes to mind. And then they kind of faded away when I think the economy got a little bit better. <laughs> now that the economy has gone thoroughly down, we're back in the a world of big 80s-style horror novels. And I'd like you to talk just about that kind of genre, which I think is an interesting genre. Well, people have talked about this book as a departure for me. And when they say that, they're referring to the supernatural component. And I would disagree with them on that. And then my books have always had that seated within them, even when they aren't outright supernatural. The Caves in Oregon, for instance, in my short story collection, Refresh, Refresh, The Caves in Oregon is a haunted house story, though there aren't any ghosts and, and, and so on. I could go throughout, throughout all of my short fiction and my, my earlier novel and, and say that you can see the tropes and the archetypes of, of horror and fantasy and westerns in, in these. But the departure here is, I'd say stylistically, Red Moon is an epic novel. And that's the kind of novel, actually, that I've always been most drawn to, that immersive reading experience. Uh, T.H. White's The Once and Future King, Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, Stephen King's The Stand, uh, or It!, uh, Robert R. McCammon's Swan Song. Uh, you know, I, losing losing yourself to a world for, for weeks at a time, I, I wanted that experience for my readers. 
and 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 wanted the, that world building opportunity as well. You alluded to a potential follow up. Uh, I'm wondering if this is what was once a trilogy is now the first book in a trilogy. Well, we'll see. Uh, I I have begun to blueprint the sequel, but first up, I I have another novel I need to polish up, and that's due out uh, next summer, June 2014. It's called The Deadlands, and it is a post-apocalyptic reimagining of the Lewis and Clark passage. So that's what I'm focused on right now. But I do have these, you know, other projects up on the wall, uh, these other 10-foot scrolls that I'm that I'm sketching out. I really like that idea. I, I, one of the things, too, I think that's interesting is that for all that we have the tropes of the supernatural, I really do feel that the hard-headedness that you bring to this, the the rigor with which you've conceived your world, speaks more to science fiction, though I don't think it necessarily feels like a science fiction novel. Well, that has to do with, again, grounding it in realism. Um to make this a believable horror. So I spent all of this time with the USDA labs in Ames, Iowa, all this time with researchers at Iowa State University figuring out the slippery science behind prions, behind the same disease that is uh, responsible for chronic wasting and mad cow. So I filled up maybe 12 yellow legal tablets talking to these people in hazmat suits. Uh, and, and figuring out how is a laboratory put together? How do you put together, uh, you know, a postdoc sequence? Uh, how do you hi- hire graduate students? How do you, how do you apply for, for grants and funding and, and create a center? How does, uh, how does vaccination work? Creating a vaccination, getting approval. How does mutation function? And, and as a result of that, and I've, Again, sprinkled this all throughout the novel so that you don't have like these huge chunks of exposition, but you get what should convince you, you, you get throughout the novel what should convince you that Lobos, the disease that, as, as I've conceived it, is, is awaiting us. I hope that the sequels are awaiting us. I've been speaking with Benjamin Percy. His new book is Red Moon. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thank you so much for having me on. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.